this week and next week, breaking down this prayer that we see from Jesus in John chapter 17. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we come to you thanking you for your grace. Your grace is the only chance that we have to be rid of our sin, to be forgiven of it, to have it cast as far as the east is from the west. So we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are our rock of ages that we can run to and hide in, Father, and we we thank you that Christ is the solid rock on which we stand. Help us to remember as we come to your word this morning that any other understanding of the world apart from your word is, is sinking sand. None of it is helpful to us apart from seeing it through the lens of what your word tells us. So help us this morning as we look at Jesus' prayer. Help us to see and examine ourselves and whether we are fulfilling this prayer. And help us to see the purpose for which Jesus prayed it. And may it all result in our hearts, our souls, our minds, loving you and praising you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wished that you could just be the fly on a wall in the midst of a, someone's conversation? Right? Maybe it was when you were a child and your parents were having some sort of secret whispering going on and you just wish you could have known what they were saying. Or maybe now that you have kids who have spouses, you want to know what they say about you once they leave, right? So you want to be on fly on the wall now in your kids' lives. Or for me, maybe we have bigger ideas than this. Maybe there's bigger conversations. For me, I've enjoyed movies like Moneyball or Draft Day, right? Where both of these movies give insight into the decisions made by general managers in the the sporting world, right? One of them's about Draft Day for the NFL, and another one's about all the -the behind-the-scenes stuff of Major League Baseball, right? These are conversations nobody gets to hear. So it's interesting to me to see, okay, what really takes place? Now I know movies aren't necessarily that accurate, but the point is that there's conversations we wish we could hear what's actually being said. Well, my friends, we have a unique privilege this morning to peer into the most intimate, perfect, loving relationship we could ever see. Jesus, on his last night with his disciples, allows them to listen in on his prayer to the Father. Remember, over and over in the Gospels, we see what? Jesus went away to pray. He went to be alone and pray. And now on his final night, he actually prays so that his disciples can listen in to this prayer. And this isn't just the short prayer that we all know from the other Gospels, right? Where where Jesus comes to the Father, he's like, Father, let this cup pass from me if there's any other way. But then he says, not my will, but your will be done. Many of us know that prayer, but this is a whole chapter worth of prayer, right? So there's another prayer that took place that night that John was able to listen in on, and he writes down for us. So we're going to spend today and next week breaking down these requests that Jesus makes in his final hours of life. May we not neglect the value of this prayer. This is 
the Son of God himself talking to the Father. And we get to peer into it. We get to listen in on this relationship. This is not a normal opportunity. So we must see the magnitude of this, not just for the disciples, but for us as well. And what we see, overarching at least our first part this morning, as Jesus requests to the Father, his request for himself and his request for his disciples, that they would glorify the Son. They would glorify the Son. And my desire is that we would grasp what Jesus was asking from the Father in this relationship, the son-father relationship, and then also what he was asking for in regards to his disciples, which also means, to some extent, in regards to us when he speaks of them glorifying the son. So let's go ahead and look at it together. John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him, all, given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now there's a lot there. There's a lot. We could spend months unpacking just this first couple paragraphs, but we're going to try to do all of it today. So we're going to take kind of broader themes here for all of it. As we look at the first group of verses here, we see the son expressing his, his desires to the father. 
right? There's only a slight mentioning in this first five verses of the disciples, right? Instead, most of this is about the father-son relationship. And Jesus has one particular request that he asks of the father, right? The son's request, glory. Of all the things we might imagine, Jesus could ask for in this moment, as he's about to go to the cross, he asks for glory, and it doesn't take long to see this desire, right? Right away in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Now, at the surface level, right, this seems like an arrogant request, doesn't it? Actually, I had a, uh, someone that I've been working with um, in another part of Indiana. I've been talking to him, and one of my former youth students. And he was telling me that he had a coworker that came to him and said, I just... I just can't believe in a God who's only concerned about his own glory. That just seems so arrogant to me, right? This is what the guy is telling my friend. And he's like, I just can't, can't believe in a God who thinks that it's all about him, that he's so arrogant that everything has to come back to him. That seems very prideful and arrogant, right? Because for any one of us to say such a thing would be true, isn't it? If any of us said, give me the glory... How arrogant and prideful would that sound? And so this friend of mine goes home and he starts to think about it. He's like, well, why do I believe that God is okay in asking for all the glory? Right? He, he concluded this. Pride and arrogance doesn't describe God if God is truly worthy of all glory. Right? To be arrogant, to be prideful, means you think more highly of yourself than you ought to. But if God is infinitely worthy of worship, God can never think too highly of himself. So when God says, I deserve glory, when Jesus here asks, glorify me, Father, he's not thinking too highly of himself because he is infinitely worthy of all glory. He's the only one that could make such a statement, make such a request, and not be wrong for asking for it. You know, you and I would be wrong for asking for this, wouldn't we? Give me all the glory. Give me all the worship, Father. But Jesus, it can't be wrong because he isn't thinking too highly of himself. So that's what we must conclude about this request that Jesus makes. To ask for his own glory is not a conceited request, but it's actually an accurate assessment of who he is. Jesus knows who he is, he knows who the Father is, and he knows that each of them within the Trinity relationship, all of them are worthy of all glory and worship. So as the Son of God, God in the flesh, he deserves glory. But he doesn't ask it even just for himself, does he? What's the second part of verse 1? Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Right? So he's asking for it so that he will be glorifying the Father in all of this. And we've already seen this throughout the entire Gospel of John, right? That the Father and the Son are deeply interconnected with each other. So when the Son receives glory, so does the Father receive glory. Jesus is not attempting to usurp his role as Son and take his Father's place and want his Father's glory. He wants his Father to receive glory as he, the Son, receives glory. In fact, Jesus has been pursuing his Father's glory the entire time he's been on earth in his ministry. Jump down to verse 4 and look what he says. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So the Father sent the Son to accomplish certain things, right? And the Son has been doing these to honor and glorify the Father. And very soon, all of these things he's been sent to do are going to be accomplished. Think of this. Jesus is praying this, knowing in less than 24 hours, he'll be in the tomb. He knows within 24 hours, he will already have been arrested, betrayed, arrested, tortured, put on the cross, die, and be buried by this time the next day. And all this work that he's about to complete was given to the Son by the Father. And as the Son does this work, as he completes it, he is glorifying the Father. But like I said, there is a slight mention here of how this extends beyond the Father-Son relationship, right? The Son goes to the cross to provide something for a specific group of people as well. It's not just in glorifying the Father, but it's that something else happens in this. We see it in verse 2. Since you, the Father, have given him, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So Jesus has been given authority over all flesh, all mankind, but for a specific purpose, to give eternal life to those whom the Father has given to the Son. So there's this group of people that the Father has given to the Son, that the Son now is completing the cross so that he can give eternal life to those people that the Father has given him. Right? We already saw this in John chapter 6. Right, No one comes to the Father unless, um, unless he is drawn to the Son by the Father. Right, No one comes to Jesus unless he is first drawn by the Father to Jesus. So the Father gives believers, these disciples at least, and also us, to the Son. And as a result, by Jesus going to the cross, he gives this group of people eternal life. This is what he goes to the cross for. It's a work the Father has given him to do, but it extends much further than this Trinity relationship. It extends now to those people that the Father has given the Son. So what is this eternal life? What is this that Jesus is going to the cross to accomplish? We see it, he describes it in verse 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's funny, we're, we have to take this in context, right? This is a prayer. Does the Father need to know what eternal life is? Does Jesus, the Son, need to describe to the Father what eternal life is? Remember the context. Who's listening in here? Right? All the disciples are hearing this prayer. That doesn't mean that this isn't genuinely part of Jesus' request, but it's just saying, remember here, the disciples are listening in, and so when Jesus is describing eternal life, their ears should be perking up, as should ours. So what is eternal life? To know the Father. To know the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ, the Son who has been sent by the Father. Those who were alienated from God now can know Him, be reconciled to Him through 
what Jesus is about to complete when he goes to the cross. Right? As people hear the gospel message from the disciples and they believe in it, they will know, be in relationship with the Son and the Father. Right? We talked all sorts about this last week. So if you want to get more info on the ins and outs of that relationship change, go back and listen to that. Jesus is about to complete all he's been sent to do. He's about to cry out, It is finished! Declaring that everyone who believes in the Son can now know the Son and know the Father. And all of that is about to conclude. Jesus makes a request that he would be glorified in it. That which has been hidden up until this point. Right? Jesus' glory has been veiled to some extent up until this point. Now he's requesting that that would be revealed by the cross and resurrection in such a way that it would stir those who believe into worship, that they would see the death and resurrection, and they would give praise to the Son and praise to the Father for what Jesus has done. That people would recognize who Jesus really is and give him glory for it. But in particular, yes, we see a glory Jesus is requesting in the cross and in his resurrection. But there's also a glory that he already has had before that he wants to be back in. He wants to be back in the glory he once had with the Father. Look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This glory that Jesus is asking for isn't some foreign concept to him. He had this glory with the Father as the Son before the world was ever made. But when he enters into our world, when he comes to earth and takes on flesh, his glory begins to be veiled and masked to us as he takes on flesh. But now that he's about to complete all that he has been sent to do, In this world, he now asked the Father, give me back that glory that I once had before the world was ever ever created. And he does. The Father answers this prayer, doesn't he? We know this from the rest of the story. We know that the Father did glorify the Son through his death and resurrection. We know Jesus did ascend into heaven and still, even to this day, is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. So Jesus prayer was answered. He is in all the glory he once had. He now has again. After now he has completed everything that the Father has sent him to do. But my friends, let's just think about this for a moment. It should stir us to worship, to glorify the Son when we think about the fact of what he gave up with the Father in order to complete our salvation. The glory he once had with the Father before the world ever existed, he gave that up so that he could enter in and take on flesh so that he could go to the cross and be resurrected so you and I can know him and the Father. We often think of Jesus, when we think of sacrifice, we think of the sacrifice on the cross that he did, and rightly so, but we often forget the sacrifice of what Jesus did just to enter into our world. 
Just in the incarnation, just what we celebrate at Christmas, we forget that was a sacrifice for Jesus just to enter into our world and give up the glory that he once had with the Father. That now, yes, he has again, but he gave it up for this time just so that you and I could have the chance to have our sins forgiven. So may that stir us to worship, stir us to glorify him. That this change in relationship from hostility, right, to being friends of Jesus, from being enemies of God to now being in right relationship with him, to being reconciled with him, the only way that is possible is because Jesus chose to conceal his glory for a time and ultimately to go to the cross, experiencing shame rather than glory. But now we see Jesus turn in his request to those who have been given to him, right? Those who he goes to the cross for. So he begins praying for those given to the Son. What we see in these next few verses is Jesus simply describing his disciples, right? Now, again, this is important to remember. Does the Father need a description of the disciples given to him? The Father knows all about these disciples, right? In fact, the Father is described here as being the one to give the disciples to Jesus. The Father knows all the ins and outs of these disciples, yet Jesus takes these moments to describe them, to paint a picture of them to the Father. Do you ever in your prayer life like go to pray to God and ask for something for a loved one, but you find yourself just simply describing the loved one rather than ask, making the request? for the loved one. I do this all the time when it comes to, especially like Lydia and the kids. Like I come to God and I have this request of I want, I want the kids to come to know Jesus or I want Lydia to have strength as she goes throughout the day. But I just end up like five or ten minutes of just rambling off all the descriptions that I'm thankful for that God has put in my wife or my children. And then finally I get to the request, right? But we kind of see something like that happening here with Jesus, It takes all the way from verse 6 to verse 11 before Jesus actually starts to make his request for the disciples. And so he's just describing them here. And what a loving way to describe his disciples as those who have been given to him. He doesn't say, Father, those guys that you stuck me with, those lame, weak fishermen who just can't understand what I'm saying. No, over and over again, not just in this portion, but throughout the entire passage, right? He says, Father, these are the ones you have given to me. They are a gift that the Son is describing them as. Imagine being the disciples and hearing that described of you. That the Son is going to the Father and saying, these are the ones you have given to me. These are the ones you have gifted to me. How encouraging is that to hear? Just look at the description in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Right? So these ones who belong to the Father, now have been given to the Son. Jesus now has been manifesting the Father to them. 
This whole ministry that we've seen from Jesus throughout his years here with the disciples has been him revealing, making known the Father, manifesting the Father to these disciples, to specifically the ones who believe. Those who believe in him are those who have responded rightly to his word. That's what we see at the end of verse 6, isn't it? You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Right? So this isn't just Jesus has revealed to everybody, and everybody's responded rightly. It's this specific group that the Father has given to him, and as he's made the Father's words known, they have kept these words. They have latched on to these words. They have obeyed these words. And it's not just some external obedience. It's not just their behaviors have changed. It's that what they know about things have co- has come to change. Look at verse 7. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, right? So now the disciples are looking at Jesus, seeing everything that Jesus has, and they're saying all of that has been given to him by the Father. They now are starting, at least to some extent, starting to see the relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus gives even more details in verse 8, right? I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Right? So we see kind of three, threefold things the disciples done. We already saw that they kept the word. But now we see they've received the word. They've come to know the truth. Specifically that Jesus came from the Father. And they have believed that Jesus was sent by the Father. Right? So it's... Now, threefold, they've received it, they've believed it, they've kept it, we saw in the previous verse. Now they've come to know the truth. These disciples, the ones given to the Son by the Father, are the ones Jesus now is turning to pray for. Right? We've seen his request, Father, glorify the Son. But now he's turning. He just described all of them. Just described all the disciples who have responded rightly to him. And now he's turning to pray for them. That's what he says in verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus is very particular in his prayer here, isn't he? I'm not praying for the world. Not for the whole world in general, but for those whom the Father has drawn to believe in the Son, those who have been given to the Son. They are God's. Because the Son and the Father share all that they have. And these ones that have been pulled out by the world, by the Father, been drawn to the Son, they belong to both of them. That's what the first half of verse 10 says, doesn't it? All mine are yours, and yours are mine. All the sons are the fathers, all the fathers are the sons. What belongs to one belongs to the other. But Jesus makes now a transition as he begins to make requests for them. Verse 10 serves as this this transition, right? Remember, what was Jesus' first request between him and the Father? 
glorify your son, right? Glorify the son. Now we know this is twofold, right? Glorify the son as the son goes to the death and resurrection, but also glorify the son and let the son have his former glory back as he ascends into heaven as well, right? So it's kind of twofold glory between the father and son. But as Jesus now turns to describing those who have been given to him, he links these disciples to his glory. Look at the second half of verse 10. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. So we see a glory that he's asking the Father to give directly to him. Now, though, he's talking about that those who belong to the Father, those who have been given to Jesus, are another aspect of Jesus' glory. So we see the Son is glorified in those given to him. He goes on to make two specific requests of the Father when it comes to the lives of his disciples. He asked the Father to keep them and to sanctify them. So first, let's look at his request for the Father to keep them. Verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So again, all of this revolves around Jesus is about to leave, right? That's what he tells us here. I'm no longer going to be in the world. Father, I'm coming to you. But those you have given me are going to be in the world. They are going to remain here in this world that we've already been told. How does this world respond to Jesus and his followers? With hate. They're going to persecute them. They're going to try to kill them. So as Jesus now is leaving them in this hateful world, he comes to the Father and he says what? Keep them. Hold on to them in your name. Hold on to the ones that belong to you. And we see a few details as we go through these verses of what this keeping looks like. So first, we see it here in verse 11. Jesus asked the Father to keep them in unity. Right? What's he say? That they may be one, even as we are one. Just as the Father and the Son are one, so also the disciples should be one. Imagine that kind of unity. Imagine just if we as a church body had that kind of unity together where we're like, people look at us and they're like, I can't distinguish one from the other. Right? Not, not Not saying that we physically start to look like one another, but it's the point is, Man, those those people stick so closely together. You can't pull one apart from the other. That's that's the way Jesus is with the Father. Everything Jesus has been doing through the Gospel of John has been what? The Father told me to do this. The Father gave me these words. The Father did this. The Father sent me for this. All of this. You can't pull them apart from one another. And Jesus says, Father, keep them. Keep the disciples. Keep these believers together. 
Hold them together in unity that they may be one, just as me as your son and you as the father are one together. Can we imagine such a unity if it existed among us? But he continues on. He begins to describe this keeping as guarding in verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Right? So now Jesus is describing how he has kept the disciples up until this point. So when he asked the Father, now that he's leaving to keep them, this is also part of what Jesus has in mind. And so Jesus says he has been guarding them. So when he asked the Father to keep them, he's asking the Father to keep them, I say, in perseverance. Right? Because what's then he used as the example? None of them has been lost. None of them has quit, except for Judas. But that was so that the scripture might be fulfilled, and we already found out Judas wasn't clean in the first place, right? Judas Judas wasn't actually a real disciple. He wasn't a real believer in Jesus. So he says, apart from the son of destruction, Judas, who is betraying me at this very moment, none of the ones which you have given me have been lost. I have guarded them. I have kept them all the way up until this point. So, Father, continue to keep them and guard them, persevere them as they continue now that I'm leaving. I I tend to think of it like a... So I I grew up not far from the school that I attended. I was literally, like, the courthouse was the school that I attended, basically, from here. And they would do cross-country practice every day after school, and I would see them run in from the school or around the school or... And where was the cross-country coach? Always riding a bike or a golf cart behind them as they ran, right? To make sure they didn't give up. To make sure they didn't quit, right? And in some sense, that's what Jesus is asking here, though much more with the Father, right? Because we also have to keep in mind, as we're running our race, what are we running to? We're running to the Father, And we're also running with the Father, right? That He is the one keeping us, persevering us as we go. He's also the one that we're running towards, right? He's much more involved than the cross-country coach is able to be involved. But just think of it like that. As, As we're running our race, the only reason you and I never give up in our faith is because the Father is keeping us. He's persevering us. He's holding on to us. From there, Jesus moves into the heart of his disciples and prays for the realization of what he's already wanted his disciples. He's already told them this in verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Right? Jesus desires that as he leaves, his disciples will have a fullness of joy. And we saw this already, right? Jesus said, you're going to be sorrowful when I'm dead. You will see me again in the resurrection, and you will have joy. You will rejoice in your hearts. But we also saw that that's a joy that continues even after Jesus ascends. So now he's asking the Father, keep them in joy. So, right, we've already seen. Keep them in unity, keep them in perseverance. Now keep them in joy. He wants the Father to hold on to them. That the disciples would hold on to this rejoicing outlook, this rejoicing mindset on life, no matter what circumstances come before them. And last in verses 14 and 15, 
I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So last we see Jesus request that the Father keep them in holiness, that he keeps them from evil, but rather turns them to walk in a way of holiness. These disciples need to be protected from the evil one, or this word could also be translated as just evil in general. It doesn't necessarily have to be evil one. It could just be evil. These disciples are going to be needed, need to be reminded again and again of who Jesus is and what their lives are supposed to look like as followers of him. As they follow the Holy One, Jesus, they should flee from evil and walk in holiness themselves. Which actually ties perfectly into Jesus' second request. Remember I said there's two. Keep them. We saw all these ways of keeping them. And the second one is that the Father would sanctify them. The word sanctify actually has direct connections with the word for holiness. One might even translate it as make them holy or set them apart from the world. See it in verse 16 and 17. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. These disciples have been chosen out of the world. They have been given to Jesus himself. And while they are still in the world, they are to be not of the world. They should look drastically different, just like Jesus looks drastically different as he comes into the world. So Jesus asked the Father, set them apart, change them, sanctify them, make them holy. And notice how is it done. Sanctify them in truth. And what is truth? Jesus says, your word, the Father's word, is truth. Well, what's that mean for the disciples? Well, they have the Father's word throughout the entire Old Testament, and now all the words that Jesus has given them, right? And they've already been promised the Holy Spirit is going to bring to remembrance all these things that Jesus has said. So they have the word of the Father to them that they are to be sanctified in. Because the truth is, As the disciples stay in the world, though they're not of the world, they don't look like the world, they're going to stay in the world, they're not going to hide. They're not going to go isolate themselves from the world, right? Look at verse 18, what's Jesus say? As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus says, I'm not just going to make, asking you to sanctify them and keep them in their own little huddle, that they never have to deal with the world. I'm sending them into the world, just like you, Father, have sent me into the world. But the disciples must go on this mission, must be sent, not looking like the rest of the world. So Jesus asked the Father, right? Make them look different. Change them as they are on this mission. Just as I looked different than the world, make them look different than the world. In fact, Jesus desires his disciples so much to be holy that he lists it here at the very end as one of the reasons he himself goes to the cross. Verse 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
Jesus is consecrating himself, which, by the way, is the same word for sanctify. We just translate it a little differently here because for Jesus to set himself apart, it doesn't have the same connotations as it does for us when we hear sanctify, right? For us, sanctify means we turn from our evil, from our sin, and become holy. Jesus is already holy. He doesn't need to turn away from any evil in him. So when Jesus, it says Jesus is sanctified, we translate it as consecrate to mean he's already holy. He's just setting himself apart for a specific purpose. And that purpose is what? To go to the cross. Jesus is about to go face his own death, set himself apart for this purpose. For what? That they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus goes to the cross so that you and I will be made holy. So that his disciples will be sent into the world with a message, but that they will look entirely different from the world as they go with that message. My friends, while Jesus is making direct references to his disciples and all of this, so much of what he requests is also true of us. We need to be kept in unity. We need to be kept in perseverance. We need to be kept in joy. We need to be kept in holiness. We need to be sanctified, set apart, changed as we are sent into the world as well. So let me just straight up ask you, how are you doing with all that? What unity do you have with other believers? Not based on do you have similar interests, but a unity based on the fact that you both have committed yourselves to Christ. How well are you persevering in your faith? How full is your joy as you face a more uh, increasingly more hostile society around us towards Christians? How much have you grown in holiness? Do you see yourself compared to the world looking more set apart, more different as you go through life? Jesus died for you to be sanctified. If it's not happening... What went wrong? Because based on this prayer so far, it may be our temptation to say, well, if believers aren't being sanctified, maybe the Father didn't answer the Son's prayer. The Father was asked to keep them and sanctify them. So if that doesn't happen, maybe God had other plans. But my friends, don't miss what is infused into this entire prayer so far. How are we sanctified? In truth. In the Father's word that has been given to us. Remember, what did Jesus say? He said, the Father gave me words, I gave those words to them, and what did they do with them? They received these words, came to know the truth, believed the truth, and have kept these words. My friends, the Father will answer the prayer of the Son. Jesus isn't making a request that the Father's not going to answer, right? Jesus already has been glorified in his death and resurrection. Jesus has already been glorified and sits at the right hand of the Father even now. The Father has already glorified the Son in the disciples' lives, right? The disciples have been kept and sanctified as they walked in the words that had been given to them. But what about you and me? How much are you receiving, knowing, believing, keeping 
the words, the truth that has been given to us. As you hold on to these words, all these words the disciples wrote down for us, as you hold on to these words, you can be sure of this. The Father will keep you. And the Father will sanctify you. And by doing so, by being kept and being sanctified, we will glorify the Son. So my friends, may you and I also answer Jesus' prayer. May we demonstrate that He is worthy of all honor, all worship, all glory, as we are kept and sanctified by the truth that He has given us. Let's pray together. Father, may we not lose sight of of how you keep us and sanctify us. That it's by the words that come from you. That it's by the word that you gave Jesus, that he shared, that the disciples wrote down, and by the word that by your spirit you carried along the disciples to write, that we might have it here sitting this morning. Father, help us to be kept and sanctified by this truth, by your word. May we receive it, know it, believe it, keep it. May we be an answer also to Jesus' prayer that he might be glorified. May that be our pursuit in life, to glorify him as we are kept and sanctified by his truth, by your truth. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I come up, we're going to sing a song about being made holy. A song called Sanctuary. Most of you probably know it. Very short, but the point is simple and ties perfectly in with everything.